this point to please turn back to that portion of scripture that we uh, read just a few moments ago in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, from the beginning of the chapter through to verse 41. John chapter 11. So, Williams, Montgomery, and John. Williams, Montgomery, and John. That's the name of a a well-known and, I suppose, well-established firm of trial lawyers in the city of Chicago in the United States of, of America. Williams, Montgomery, and John. And in order that that firm... Uh, kind of continue to provide the, the highest levels of legal representation. What they do, what the partners and the big bosses of this company do, is that they provide all their lawyers, all the lawyers affiliated with the company, they provide them with a kind of a set of guidelines. And they provide their lawyers with almost like a code of conduct about how to perform to the best of their ability in the courtroom. And at the very bottom of the page, the very foot of this sort of set of guidelines and code of conduct, the partners, the bosses, they provide their lawyers with one golden rule. And it is a golden rule about how to end a closing argument in the courtroom, a golden rule. We've got it here. I'll read you the golden rule. It's this. They say, (coughs) excuse me, when making your closing argument, ensure that you bring all of the main points of the case together in a cohesive manner so that the jury, so that the people listening will focus in on what's important and will come to the correct decision. You get it? Take all the points of the argument together so that the people listening will come to the correct decision. And folks, over the last few weeks, as we've been looking at the signs of John, we've really been looking at a legal argument, a legal-style argument, haven't we? John's kind of gone through a case He's gone through the case for Christ. And this morning as we meet together, we come to his, uh, you know, the climax. We come to the, the closing argument. This is where John takes all the bits and pieces of his argument. He puts them together in a cohesive manner so that you, so that we would make the correct decision about who Jesus is. So let's look at it. Let's look at this section of scripture. Let's get to the text. And let's look at this incredible raising of Lazarus from the dead. So our first point this morning is this. Jesus' reaction to death. Jesus' reaction to death. (coughs) Now, we've mentioned this before. No doubt we will mention it again. But very often in 
a sort of a conservative Christian setting, such as ours here. Very often what we do is we run to the divine nature of Jesus Christ, almost at the expense of his humanity. Now, it's, it's almost understandable why we do that, isn't it? You know, there's so many liberal views of Jesus out there that we try and, we try and distance ourselves from that and we, we rush to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We rush to the fact that Jesus is infinite and he is eternal and he is all power and we kind of push to one side his humanity. We kind of overlook sometimes the miracle that Jesus became man, that he has also a human nature. But here in this section, we have the most incredible insight into that humanity of Jesus, don't we? An incredible insight into it because, you know, here we, we've got and we see an intensely sympathetic reaction to death from Jesus. You see that? It's a sympathetic reaction to death. So where do we see that? Where do we see his sympathy here, folks? Well, do you not think there's a kind of, at least an element of sympathy in the way that Jesus speaks to his disciples here about Lazarus' death? You know, because he's breaking the news of Lazarus' death, and, and he does so not in a kind of cold way. Does he? Jesus isn't really blunt with his disciples. Do you see it there? It's, 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 there's a real warmth. There's almost a, a beautiful tenderness about how Jesus speaks of Lazarus' death. Because he speaks to his disciples and he says this. He says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Isn't that gentle? Isn't that, isn't there kindness there? Isn't there a tenderness and a sympathy? And that's fine, but I think that we see Jesus' sympathy much more clearly in his reaction to Mary and Mary's grief here. And let's be frank about this, okay? Let's be honest here. Jesus breaks down. You know, he sees Mary crying, and he sees the Jews doing the same, and our Lord folds. You know, he, he, he breaks down. Now, how does that sound to you? Does that sound like heresy? The Son of God breaking down? No way! Well, look at verse 35. Because it's more than just an answer to a Bible trivia question, isn't it? It simply says that Jesus wept. He wept. Now that's not a tear in his eye, okay? And that is not a solitary tear on the cheek of Jesus. And it is not just a kind of vague sadness. Because the verb in the Greek is in the aorist tense. And that means that it, it describes or signifies a definite action. 
Do you get it? Jesus bursts into tears. He bursts into tears. He is weeping aloud here. He is crying. He breaks down. That's okay. But why why does he do that? And the temptation is probably to say, well, it's kind of obvious why Jesus is crying. Because Mary's crying. And Martha's crying. And the Jews are upset. So no wonder. Well, that's not it, is it? That doesn't make sense. Because think about it. In a couple of minutes, Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus knows in just a moment, these people are going to be jumping for joy. They're going to be so happy. They're going to be jubilant. So there has to be more to Jesus' mourning and, and, and grief and his tears than that. So why is he weeping? Well, yeah, of course, part of it is the fact that, that Mary's upset and the other people are upset. But more than that, Jesus is weeping because of the hurt and the pain and the loss that all of his people experience and go through because of death. This is more than just about Mary and Martha here. This is Jesus weeping for all of his people, all of his children who have been affected and hurt by the loss of a loved one. And do you not think that flies in the face of the version of God that Britain has? You know, especially when it comes to death. You know, we hear about how uncaring God is, don't we? We hear that God is cold and God is distant. You know, if God loved us, how could he possibly have let that person die? Well, look here. Here Jesus is weeping. He's crying and he's doing that because he loves and he cares for his people who have lost loved ones. You see, folks, the son empathizes because the son has heard those, that dreaded phrase, those words that we never want to hear. He's heard those words, the one you love is sick. He's heard that. And the son empathizes because he has stood at the grave of a recently buried loved one. He's been there and he stood there. So you see, friends, when we are faced with the loss of someone we love, there is really only one place that we can turn. And it is to a sympathetic, a sympathetic saviour. Sympathetic saviour. So he's sympathetic, but there's a second reaction we've got to get our heads around here. Because Jesus doesn't just weep. He is also angry here. He is angry. And uh, I don't in any way want to provoke any lack of confidence in our Bible translations, not a bit of it. But we could read that portion of Scripture in the NIV and not pick it up. 
We could miss the fact that Jesus is angry. Because it says, verse 33 and verse 38, the NIV says that Jesus was deeply moved. It says he was deeply moved by what's going on here. But that's not right. And that is not in any way forceful enough. Because Jesus wasn't deeply moved. The word means, get this, the word means fury. It means rage. And Don Carson, the Bible scholar, he says, <laughs> he says this, that this word here, it invariably means anger. Jesus is angry here. But what is he angry about? Well, part, part of the focus of Jesus' anger Surely, death itself. He's angry because death is a horrific invasion into the perfect and original plan of God. Do you see that, folks? Death was never meant to be. Death is completely unnatural. It is an unnatural thing. It is only part of life because of sin. And that angers Jesus. But there's another reason for his anger. And I think we can only work it out if we appreciate where Jesus is standing here. So in verse 38, where is Jesus standing? He's angry. It says he was angry or deeply moved. He was angry when he came to the tomb. When he came to the tomb. Do you get it? Do you see the picture there? He is angry as he stands face to face with a tomb that is carved out of the rock. He is angry as he stands face to face with a big stone that is going to have to be moved away from the tomb. Jesus is angry here because he knows that very soon it's going to be his own body that's lying in a tomb just like that. He's angry because he knows that very soon that he will have to face death, that he will have to fight and battle death. No wonder he reacts like this. No wonder he's angry. And friends, very often for, for you and I, when we lose someone, when we lose someone close to us, when someone dies, it is accompanied by anger, isn't it? We lose a family member and we burn with rage and we burn with anger. And we learn here that we've got to be careful about where we direct that anger because our anger should not be at God. The focus of our anger in these circumstances, it should be at sin because it's sin that has caused this horrific and, and, and disgusting incursion called death. It's sin that has perverted God's perfect world. It's sin that has caused our loved ones 
to be taken from us. Sin that should be the focus of our anger, not, not Jesus Christ. He's the one who provides comfort. He's the one who provides sympathy. And he's the one who stands with us in rage and fury and anger at death. So Jesus' reaction to death. Let's move on. Let's consider our next point, and that is that That is Jesus' authority over death. Jesus' authority over death. So folks, it's a constant source of amazement to me just how much rubbish and nonsense uh, you can find on the internet. There's just a mass of rubbish out there, isn't there? And um, this week I came across a, a classic example of it because I was reading an article by a pastor, a a female minister in, uh, I think she was from Toronto in in Canada, and she was writing a paper about Jesus' lack of authority over death. And um, I guess, I suppose like many people in our churches, up and down the UK, and like many people who actually profess faith in Jesus Christ, she can accept certain things about Jesus Christ. She can accept that there's profundity in his teaching. He's a wise guy, wise man. And she can accept that, you know, there was perhaps power there, that Jesus could maybe heal people. When it comes to his ability to raise to life this pastor, like many people, this was a stumbling block, and she flatly and completely denies that this would be a possibility. And that's the same, it's a similar thought all the way through John 11. (coughs) Did you notice that, that, that everyone that's involved in this incident at the tomb, everyone doubts Jesus? They doubt his authority over death. Everyone. Because you've got Mary. And Mary eventually goes to Jesus and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So do you get what she's saying? She's saying, I believe in your power, but to a certain extent, I believe that if you were here, you could have prevented death. But now that Lazarus is dead, there ain't nothing you can do. That's Mary. Then the Jews, they kind of say the same thing. Verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? You get it? They believe that he's got power. But now that there's death, Jesus can't do anything. Mary, Jews, then Martha. Martha's interesting, isn't she? She's really interesting because you think... She gets it. Because you think that she, she believes in the power of Jesus to raise Lazarus. Because she says, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So it sounds good. But when you read that in light of what she says later on, and when you read that in light of her total opposition to Jesus opening the tomb, then you begin to see she's just like the rest of them. She doesn't get it. 
She only believes that Jesus has limited power. Limited power. But boy, Jesus proves them all wrong, doesn't he? You know, he shows that he is complete power. He gives them a demonstration that shows that he is authority even over death. And he does that in kind of three ways. We see his authority over death in three ways. I'll give you the first one. Consider the assurance he's got here. Consider Jesus' confidence about what he's about to do. He says in verse 4, he promises, this, is, this will not end in death. Verse 11, to the disciples, I am going there to wake him up. What confidence? I am going there to wake him up. Verse 23, promises to Lazarus' sister, your brother will rise again. And then verse 41, and I love this. This is tremendous. Verse 41, Jesus prays. And he prays and he thanks God for raising Lazarus before Jesus does it. He thanks God for raising Lazarus prior to Jesus ushering out Lazarus from the tomb. Do you get it? Such is his authority over death that he can speak about it with confidence, with absolute conviction and certainty. So it's assurance. But then, second, second thing here, we see his authority over death in his actions at the tomb. Because what does he do at the tomb? Gets to the tomb, how does he behave? Well, here is a man in complete control because he issues command after command after command. In the Greek, there's nothing but imperatives. You know, he <coughs> he says, uh, he commands that the stone be taken away. Then he speaks to Lazarus. And he doesn't speak to Lazarus in a kind of whisper. It's not a, a hopeful mumble. He speaks in a, a loud voice. What does he say? He commands that the dead man come out. And what happens? Lazarus comes out. Do you get it? Death is under the command of Jesus Christ. Death is under his control. So his assurance is actions. And then think and consider his assertion to Mary. Because what a claim of authority over death this is. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now that is a claim of authority. You know, Martha comes to him. She's got, you know, the seeds of belief. She believes that, that he can do certain things. And he says, no, Martha, you don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. I have authority over death, the authority to give life. And friends, this morning, we've got to remember something. 
we've got to remember that this isn't a miracle. It is a miracle, but it isn't just a miracle, is it? What is it? Sumia, it's a, it's a sign. It points to a much deeper and greater spiritual significance. This isn't about Jesus' authority. It isn't just about his authority to raise Lazarus from the grave. This is about his authority and power to give eternal life, eternal life to all who will repent and believe in him. This isn't just about Lazarus. This is about you. This is about me. Everlasting life is available in Jesus Christ. Everlasting life, eternal life in glory, it is available only in him. You see, there's no limits to his power. There's no limits to his authority. He is the resurrection and he is the life. Okay, so we've seen his, his reaction and his authority. Let's just conclude this morning. Let's close just looking at a third thing, and that is Jesus' purposes in death. Jesus' purposes in death. Last. <clears throat> now, folks, Jesus does something here that's really fascinating. It's a really intriguing thing that Jesus does here because at a very, very crucial stage here. Jesus does nothing. He does absolutely nothing. He learns about Lazarus. He learns about his friend's death. And he doesn't pack up his bags and run to Bethany. He waits. He does nothing. He delays and stays where he he was for two days extra days. Did you see that when we're reading through it? He stays where he was for two extra days. Why does he do that? Well, Jesus did that in order that he wouldn't get to Lazarus's body until Lazarus had been dead for four days. That number's important. Lazarus had to be dead for four days. Why is that? Well, it was because some of the Jews held a superstitious belief. Some of the Jews believed that when a person died, that the spirit of that person would linger around the body for three full days. So Jesus waits, and he waits two extra days. He waits till there be no doubt whatsoever that Lazarus was dead. But why was that important? Why had there to be no doubt that Lazarus was dead? Well, it's really for the same reason that we've noted time and time again throughout our sermon series in John's Gospel. Jesus delayed so that the glory of God would be revealed in himself. You see, you know, don't you, as well as I do, that that's been the main thrust of all these signs, hasn't it? It's always been about 
the revelation of God's glory. That's why Jesus turned water into wine. That's why he healed the sick and the lame and the blind. That's why. That's why he waits till Lazarus is confirmed as dead. So that these people looking on at the tomb, that they would see very, very clearly the glory of God as Jesus ushers a man who is categorically and indisputably dead. He's dead. Jesus ushers him to life and he ushers him from the tomb. Friends, we need to note here that sometimes God delays. Sometimes in our lives, God waits. He waits. Now, in our congregation just now, there are numerous situations where people are crying out to God for answers to prayer. And there are numerous situations in our congregation where people are wondering, why has God not answered these prayers? Why are we not seeing answers? When we pray about our health, and we pray about our job situation, and we pray even about our future, our future in this country, why is God not answering? Why are we not seeing answers to prayer? Well, we see here that Jesus delays. And he does so for a very good reason. He delays that the glory of God might be revealed. So I would say to you this morning, trust that that is why God is delaying in your situation. That the glory of God might be revealed. And then we just finished just now, just exactly where we started, okay? Exactly where we started weeks ago at the beginning of our series of the signs, okay? Because all along, John has had one reason for writing his gospel, and he's had one reason for writing all this stuff about his signs. And it's where we started our sermon series. So you cast your mind back weeks ago to John 20, 31. He says, these things are written. These signs are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, this morning we end and just ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the wine of the new covenant? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the new place of worship? Do you believe that he is the only one who can provide that spiritual health and sight and life? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And do you believe that very soon after this event that there would be another empty tomb. Do you believe that? Do you? Well, I reckon that if the author of this book, John, the beloved disciple, I reckon if he was here this morning, then he would say to us simply, well, that's it. 
Those were the signs of Jesus. And now it is over to you. Now the defense rests. It is decision time, folks. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Let's pray.